Hi, I'm Don from Philadelphia. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Jesse? Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. Radio This week on The Sound of Young America, writer, comedian, and Daily Show contributor Larry Wilmore. It's unbelievable. Obama is not only popular here at home, but around the world. And it's not his rhetoric. It's not even his smile. It's something a, a little more basic. In that regard, my younger son, Cannon, he is eight. And he now says that he, he would like to be black. <laughs> I'm not kidding. He, he wants, there's a lot of advantages to being black. Black is in. Two things, John. Uh, Larry King has an eight-year-old son. That is f***ed up. But secondly, black is in. That hasn't happened in a long time. I, I didn't know that you kept track of that. The, oh, the oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, out. yeah, oh, yeah, oh, John. Look, we've had our moments. During the 60s, we had civil rights. <laughs> gave us a lot of buzz. 30s, Joe Lewis gave us a little heat, you know. But who's going to compete with free soup? <laughs> the last time we were in was way back when we built the pyramids. <laughs> I, I don't want to uh, rain on that parade, but I, but I believe uh, you made us build the pyramids. Like I said, we were in. <laughs> it's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Larry Wilmore, is a longtime television writer who wrote for, among other shows, uh, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, In Living Color, co-created uh, the series The PJs, also is now a, a contributor to The Daily Show, created The Bernie Mac Show, among many other amazing credits, he's also the author of I'd Rather We Got Casinos and Other Black Thoughts, a new book of uh, comic observations, fake op-ed pieces, and letters to the NAACP. Larry, welcome to the Sandy Young America. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, and I'm glad that you know that it's fake. Some people think it's real. So. <laughs> <laughs> there was a part of me that was wondering if that was like going to be a, if that was a Laszlo Toth type situation yeah. where you were where you were mailing those letters to the NAACP. Exactly, or at least pretending to, you know. And uh, the experience was real, so that's all that counted, you know. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the uh, length and breadth of your career since you've, had, okay. you, you've, had, you've done so many wonderful things. There's more breadth to length. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> There's more girth than there is. When I understand, that's what's important. I have a very so. girthy career. Sure. <laughs> um, you, you started out as a, a stand-up comic. Did, mm-hmm. you, did you start out as a stand-up comic as a way to... You know, showcase yourself for yeah, sure. Hollywood, or because stand-up was the form that you thought you were going to do for the rest of your career. Um, it's funny. Um, back in those days, <laughs> as we say, as we get a little older, uh, you stand-up was kind of its own thing. I mean, it was huge back then, and you kind of did it to be a stand-up. You know, that was the thing you wanted to do was to be a good stand-up. You didn't see it as I want to get my five minutes to hopefully get a sitcom. You know, you really wanted to be a comedian, and that's what I wanted to do. But also, I was interested in other things at the time. I was a theater major in college, 
And um, my first gig was at the Mark Taper Forum's Improvisational Theater Project. It was this theater thing where we wrote a play through improv. So I was my first uh, union was Actors' Equity. <laughs> so I have a very strong theatrical background, actually. So when I started doing stand-up, which I did because I was a little frustrated going to auditions and having to read for certain types of roles, and I thought I should kind of write my own thing. Um, you know, I also had that other side of me that wanted to do more serious writing or explore more uh, bigger things, you know. And so after doing stand-up for a while, I decided I wanted to write for television to kind of get that out of me. And that's, so, when, that's when you got the gig writing for Rick Dees? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm on uh, Inside the Actors Studio. That's a like, big... How that's did a, you know that? <laughs> I feel like I, I saw that credit on your resume. It's right. such an outlier. I felt like I could hardly yes. not bring up Very the fact that you wrote for... Now, you wrote for Rick Dees' sh- you short-lived... You have to be an outlier to write for Rick Dees, by yeah, the way. <laughs> his short-lived... Uh, Late night right. TV talk show. Yes. Rick D's a really nice guy, though he scared me once when I, I asked him what his favorite song was. And he said, uh, the number one song on the chart. And I go, the number one song? What is the number one song? He said, no, no, no. Whatever song is the number one is my favorite. And I was like, <laughs> ouch. Ouch. <laughs> was that your actual like first, first, first writing gig? First television writing gig. Before that, I used to write jokes for comedians and that kind of thing. And... Um, and it just, yeah, just kind of led to that. So. What were you writing on the Rick D's television show? Did he have like a monologue? Yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it was more like a soliloquy, you know, <laughs> because it was more like him, a naked deer in the headlights on stage. I probably, I don't know. So, uh, yeah, it was more like strange interlude or something, you know, than, than an actual monologue. But, you know, it was fun. The thing is, you had to learn how to... Uh, deliver something every single day. And that was the best thing about it. But I was only there for about six months. Then I got the job in a living color. And a living color is something that uh, I'm sure that was not just changing your careers, I'm mm-hmm. sure it did, but was no, big kind time. of changing TV at, at the time. Absolutely. I, I felt it was the first show to bring hip-hop culture into the mainstream. The only other show at the time was probably Arsenio. But America, for the most part, they didn't know what hip hop was, you know, and, and Living Color kind of just just swept that right in with the fly girls and kind of the clothing, the just the whole vibe and the look of it. And think about the people that came out of there: Jamie Foxx, I mean, J Lo, Rosie Perez, uh, Jim Carrey. I mean, so many stars came out of that show. It was amazing, well, as well as the Williams Brothers, which there are fifteen of them, by the way. Did you write for the show right from the from the start, or were no? You? I started in the uh, third season. The show had been on for like a season and a half. So I was there for maybe the second and a half season, whatever you want to call it. What, what was it like to get added to that staff? Because by the time mm-hmm. you by the time you joined the gang, right. it was already clearly something that was important. Well, it had a bit of a turnover right there. I mean, it was very competitive, and it was tough holding on to your job. In fact, Keenan was like Murphy Brown. He fired his assistant every week, literally, you know. And so it was a very tough competitive environment, and you really had to work hard to survive, which, once again, teaches you big lessons, too. But So when I got in there, the first wave of writers, there were only a couple of writers from the first season who were still around. In fact, there may have only been one. So a lot of the original writers had kind of moved in. Do you remember anything that you uh, wrote on the show? Like, for example, the, mm-hmm. the first thing that you that you got on the air as a new writer. Sure. The, fir- the very first thing I got on, I was very excited. It was a parody of Silence of the Lambs. With um, We had this character named Oswald who would use all these big words and everything. Sure. And uh, he was, you know, the one, uh, he was Hannibal Lecter. You know, they're trying to get information, but they can't understand a word he's saying, you know. 
And then the the one that kind of saved my job, actually, because you always felt you were going to get fired, like I said. But I wrote a sketch for Keenan called Jesse Jackson's Children's Books. And it was Jesse Jackson doing his version of the Dr. Seuss books, like Hop on Cop, you know, or <laughs> How the Grinch Stole My Stereo. You know, it was that kind of thing, you know. And uh, and he really enjoyed it a lot, and it got big laughs, so that was cool. Did you feel like the voice of that show was... Horton Here's a Hoe. <laughs> that was good. And I was like, I know, I, there's, I know there's a hoe who's down there, and what's more, quite likely there's two, even three, even four. A whole family of hoes who hold to survive. Don't be like a hoe, just keep hope alive. You know? <laughs> so that was, <laughs> that was kind of the way his book went. Did you feel yeah. you're about the right age where... You could or could not consider yourself part of the hip hop generation. Did mm-hmm. you did you relate to that thing that no, you just described? I was kind of on the cusp of it. Uh, like I'm more what's called the old school generation. That's um, old school set meaning '70s old school. You know, where I was I like I was formed by stuff like Parliament. You know, and on the other the other extreme of that, Earth, Wind, and Fire. You know, wasn't too much into the rock scene during the '70s, but uh, I was. A big fan of uh, like the uh, Beatles and stuff like that from the 60s. So when uh, hip hop took off, I was already kind of, I was an adult already at that point. Like um, when I was still in high school, that's when Sugar Hill Gang first kind of hit. But at that point, my friend and I, we were very, my, I had a friend from New York, we were very much into the music scene at that time. And we used to get records and mix things ourselves and like DJs and that kind of stuff and mix beats and all that kind of stuff back before it was really a big thing to do, you know. But we just did it for fun. With your perspective on that on that kind of cusp of the mm-hmm. generations, what did you see as being different besides just booking rappers to sure. perform on the show? What was different about the voice? Well, the, I think the biggest difference about the hip-hop voice is this kind of braggadocio, narcissistic thing where it's all about how good you are at something. You know, I'm good at this. I'm going to... F you like you've never been this, you know. My, I mean, Missy Elliott does a song about her vagina, you know, <laughs> where she's talking to her vagina. I mean, this is the song. I'm cleaning it up for NPR, you know. I mean, you would never have Marvin Gaye do a song like that. Well, Millie you know? Jackson might do a song like yeah, that. Yeah, not directly talking to her vagina. <laughs> That's you know? a good point. She, she would talk Probably to you. Probably wouldn't personify it. So you it. would talk to her vagina. I mean, <laughs> That's what Millie Jackson would do, let's be honest. And she was as naughty as they came back then, you know. But it was just a different type of perspective. And it was, uh, I think Muhammad Ali kind of brought that in, and that generation ran with it, you know. Because before Ali, bragging about yourself was not considered a good thing to do. So as a kid, to me, that was a foreign type of thing, bragging on yourself. But so hip-hop just said, this is me, this is it, I'm coming at you. You know, it's going to be in your face, it's going to be fly, it's going to be dope, it's going to be this, you know. And I'm not afraid to say that. That, to me, was what hip-hop was, you know. It was an embracing of yourself in that culture, you know. It's the Sound of Young America for MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Larry Wilmore, is the senior black correspondent on The Daily Show and a hugely accomplished television writer. He created The Bernie Mac Show as well as the animated sitcom The PJs, which starred Eddie Murphy as the super in a housing project. I don't know the importance of school. I mean, when I was a boy, I went to school every day. The summers, too. You even did some grades twice. That's right. But I was a special student. Anyway, we're here to talk about Calvin. Now to break down the criminal mind for us, Mr. Walter Burkett. Walter? Well, in my capacity as a parole officer, I don't deal with young children. I work mainly with their teenage parents. Well, what we need to know is this. 
if he skips again tomorrow, where is he most likely to go? Well, he ain't going to Harvard, that's for sure. <laughs> what were you thinking of when you created the PJs? I've always been drawn to satire, and if it's not there, I feel like it needs to be there. It's kind of my perspective on things. I kind of fell into it, to be honest with you. I had just signed my first overall deal with Disney and looking to do a project. I was approached about, uh, someone called me and said, Eddie Murphy was interested in doing an animated show. And at first I thought they meant a Saturday morning cartoon. And I was like, well, I don't think I want to do that. Why is Eddie doing that? You know? And uh, when I found out more about it, I found out that it was with Brian Grazer and Ron Howard and, you know, Imagine. And uh, it was actually a primetime show they were interested in doing. And uh, so I, I went ahead and, and took the meeting. And, and uh, the idea that Eddie had, Eddie... Uh, said he was kind of tired of the way sitcoms looked at the time, that it was the same kind of living room and the same kind of family, the did same you, kind of set. Did you know him when you met him? No, it's the first time I met him. And uh, he said he just wanted to do something different, and that's all he had in mind. And he got the idea. It's funny, he and Ron Howard kind of, or Brian Grazer kind of, uh, saw the same thing and got inspired in different ways. Ron Howard was doing Apollo 13 at the time, and he was watching this old show called The Thunderbirds. I don't know if you remember that. I mean, sure. Before your marionette yes, animated marionettes. show. Oh, when I was a kid, it was very cool, you know, these marionettes in space. And Eddie had watched it, too, independently of them. He was doing Naughty Professor with Brian. And he said, oh, it'd be cool to do something like that, you know, with puppets in the projects or something. <laughs> and uh, That know, story really came alive. With that. <laughs> right, that's, I thought, you know, it's radio. Sure, might Nobody as well. Knows. They may think he's here. He is. They may See think, you later, Eddie. Hey, Thanks hey, for stopping hey, by. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the simple idea, puppets in the projects. That's all Eddie had. And he had thought of there, maybe there should be a super character. And, you know, I think he had like a a white guy who still lived there. It was this angry racist guy that somehow still lived in the projects. Those are like the two characters. So anyhow, I got involved and pulled my friend Steve Tompkins to do it with me because he had done Simpsons and uh, The Critic and worked with me in Living Color. And I thought it'd be great to work with him. And that's how it started. And Steve and I pretty much just developed the show out of those simple ideas. I remember being really struck by it. I mean, I, uh, I grew up in a very inner city context. And uh -huh. I remember like... I remember just being struck by seeing that on TV. Right. Yeah, I, I don't think it was anywhere else. And Steve and I really thought of it as a satire. You know, our uh, not really a Black Simpsons, but um, really was a satire of that whole the way people view the projects and and just the the way that it's talked about. You know, and that and the image that it has more than the authentic life itself. Breakfast coming up. <clears throat> Oh, yes, coffee's ready, too. Um, I'm sorry, we're out of Sunny D. Chitlins? Why would you want chitlins for breakfast? I was cleaning my throat. We got chitlins? I remember about the show, and I, I you know, didn't get a chance to see it when preparing for this interview, so the last mm -hmm. time I saw it was on TV. I remember right. two things. I remember thinking that it was really funny, and I also Thanks. remember it being very controversial mm -hmm. at very the time. So. Did you expect that going in? You know what? Not really, because Steve and I have both done In Living Color, and we were very outrageous, we thought, on that show. You know, I mean, I wrote a sketch once in Living Color where it was right after Sammy Davis Jr. died, and we did Weekend at Sammy's, you know, <laughs> where um, because Alta Vis couldn't pay the tax bill, the estate tax, she had to pretend like Sammy was still alive, you know? <laughs> and, uh, I mean, that's the kind of outrageous stuff that we were writing. And we ended up doing Ghost instead, where... Uh, 
Crystal played Whoopi, and Sammy was inhabiting her body and speaking out the beast. And she even wrote us a letter and said how much she liked it. So uh, we were kind of used to doing outrageous things. So when it, so in the PJs, we really didn't expect it that much. But then again, we had a crackhead on the show, which uh, might have been across the line at the time. But we thought it wasn't any different than Jim from Taxi or Otis from The Andy Griffith Show, you know. It's the sound of young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Daily Show contributor Larry Wilmore. His new book is I'd Rather We Got Casinos. We'll have more with Wilmore in just a minute. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Our darkish teal ribbon campaign for maximum fun awareness is in full swing. We're promoting awareness of MaximumFun.org and our fine internet information products through the best awareness-raising tool of them all, the Symbolic Ribbon. We've already started sending out darkish teal ribbons to community-minded listeners around the country. If you'd like a ribbon of your own mounted carefully on a custom-printed presentation card suitable for framing, send an SASE to Darkish Teal Ribbon, 720 South Normandy Avenue, number 512, Los Angeles, California, 90005. And if you'd like to put up a virtual darkish teal ribbon, visit our blog at MaximumFun.org and click on the ribbon in the sidebar for the relevant HTML code. Remember, if we work together, we can end ignorance of MaximumFun.org in our time. Welcome back to The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is writer and actor Larry Wilmore. Before he became a writer-performer on The Daily Show, he created the Fox sitcom, The Bernie Mac Show. I feel for his sister. But what does Bernie Mac know about raising kids? He's a comedian. He tells your mama jokes. And how am I going to explain to AT&T that I'm late for work again because my husband's taping a TV show and I spent the morning cleaning poop out of the light socket? They don't play that. They are AT&T. I want to ask you about writing for Bernie Mac. What was it like the, the first time that you saw Bernie Mac do stand-up? Well, it's funny because I met Bernie Mac when I was doing the PJs. Um, we used to have to go and find Eddie wherever he was and get him to record something. It's kind of like a radio show, just to, yeah. you know, here in your house. And uh, we'd have, sometimes we'd go to his trailer on a movie set. Sometimes we'd go to Sacramento where he had a house, and we'd do it in a studio up there. Sometimes we'd fly to New Jersey in his house called Bubble Hill, and uh, we'd do it there. He had his own studio. So Steve and I were used to traveling where It's called Bubble Hill? Bubble Hill. That's his <laughs> It's an excellent name for an estate. Oh, it's great. You know. And uh, so anyhow, we were, uh, we were on the set of Life, um, the movie that Eddie did with Martin Lawrence, and Bernie had a small part in it, and he was just sitting around, and we were waiting for Eddie, you know. And I go up to him and said, hey, Bernie, I'm a big fan. He goes, oh, hey, man, how you doing? And he was really, really nice. And I said, Bernie, I, I would love to write for you one day. He said, oh, man, that would be great. He said, come see me at the amphitheater. I'm going to be there the other week. And I was like, okay, cool. And I thought, I, don't, I think he thinks I want to write for his stand-up. I want to write something for him, you know. That's what I was thinking. And I think he thought for his stand-up. And when I got the idea a couple of years after that, um, just from watching reality television, I got an idea to do a show that felt real. That was kind of, you know, the thing you were talking about where black shows kind of went in the 90s. I wanted to go the opposite direction, go to a more realistic feel of a show, you know, that didn't have action kind of pushed at us. We were more drawn in. 
So you felt the kids really did have a dilemma of their mom being on crack. This is the opposite of the PJs now, where it's not a joke. It's the reality of it sucks you in emotionally. And so because you have this feeling for these children, Bernie can get away with anything. You know, as the guy who's taking care of these kids, you're going to love him from the beginning. You know, And um, seeing Bernie's act in The Kings of Comedy where he, you know, he talked about taking care of the kids and everything. It was the funniest thing I'd seen at the time. He said, um, I believe you should be able to hit a kid in the throat of the stomach. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in the throat of the stomach. That's what I believe. Come on, Charlotte, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you know, you'd say that. It was so funny, you know. And uh, I thought that, you know, I just thought that would be a good premise for kind of the feel that I had. I pitched the show to Bernie. And uh, he was taking several pitches at the time. People were pitching him different things. And that's when he was just getting hot from Kings of Comedy. And he liked the idea, and then I pitched it to Fox and sold it there. So. He was such an amazing performer mm-hmm. in in that he could balance the emotion you right. talked about, that he could show the emotion mm-hmm. you talked about while being uh, like probably the most ferocious mm-hmm. performer of, of stand-up comedy that I've ever seen in my entire life. I agree with that. And it was the reason why I had to have the show single camera, um, which was a really tough sell. And even to the last second, even after it was shot, after, when it was going to put on the air, they still wanted to put it in front of an audience. And I had to fight. And eventually ended up getting fired because of all those fights that I had with Fox. But I knew I couldn't compete with Bernie Mac, the comedian. And if I was in front of an audience, I'd be competing with that Bernie Mac all the time, where he'd have to have that kind of energy and have to be telling those type of jokes. I thought if I made it single camera, I can be more introspective with Bernie. We can get to know a different... Bernie, instead of Bernie Mac, Bernard McCulloch, which is Bernie's real name. And um, and that's the experience that I wanted the audience to have, who this guy really is, what is really motivating him. The fact, the theme of the show was kids are terrorists and I don't negotiate with terrorists. That was the theme of the show, basically. And so I needed to pull that out in every single scene that we were dramatizing. And so you had, it couldn't just be jokey. You had to really get in there and feel what he was feeling. And one of the keys to the show turned out to be... Um, when Bernie did his stand-up, and he was in Charlotte, North Carolina, and he treated the crowd like they were one person. You know, he would say, Charlotte, you know what I'm talking about. You know what Bernie, Charlotte, you know what Bernie Mac is saying. And I thought that would be a good hook for the show to just do America and treat America like they were his <laughs> best friend. Like, America, you know, you know what Bernie Mac is saying. You know, you know I don't really hate those kids, you know. And that that would be a nice uh, device for the emotional uh, door to the show, you know. And uh, it turned out to do it to work like that. I'm here to tell you that uh, I'm gonna kill one of them kids. Oh, don't get me wrong. I love them. They my blood. I give them the shirt off my back. You ever see a chicken with his neck one <laughs> laying to the side all lazy and weak? That's what I'm gonna do to them kids. Talk back to me one more time. Snap! I'm gonna snap their neck off. <laughs> They're too sassy. They're too grown today. They talk back too much. Yeah, I know what you're saying, America. I don't care what you're talking about. Bernie Mac crew, Bernie Mac beat his kids. I don't care. That's your opinion. Because you don't know the story. You don't know what went down. And they're not my kids. Were you conscious of the fact that not only were you pulling a a very difficult trick in terms of finding the tone of this show, Mm -hmm. but also that it was a tone that had certainly not been represented at all in terms of black sitcoms? Well, what happened was it was a huge challenge. When I was writing the pilot script, I never turned in an outline. They forgot, I think I, I think they forgot I was even writing it. 
I, I was in an old Disney office that I had from that old deal that had expired, but I kept the office, and I used to just keep going on the lot. <laughs> you know, there's no secretary. There's boxes in there. I'm just kind of hiding. <laughs> I'm going to the commissary every day, acting like a... And I'm not supposed to be on the lot. And I'm trying to write this pilot script. In four and a half, five weeks, I wrote the same three pages over and over and almost quit. And I was out of my mind. And I was banging my head against the wall. I was stuck. I couldn't, and it was tone. I couldn't catch the tone. Uh, and I knew it wasn't there. And then uh, one day, it something just clicked, and I got to the fourth page. <laughs> you know, After throwing the same three pages out, I'd type it, throw it out, type it, throw it out. I finally got to the fourth page, and I hit something. And I was like, wow, that's it. I got it. The rest of it poured out of me in 48 hours. The whole, the whole show poured out of me. And that script won an Emmy for uh, that next year, which was pretty much intact. I didn't even do a whole lot of rewriting, and, and it just poured out. Just what do you, what, what was it that was. you got? It was just, I can't, it's hard to explain. It's a whole new interview. <laughs> <laughs> but I talk about, I, sometimes I teach writing and that kind of thing. It's more of a writer's discussion, to be honest with you. It's the Sound of Young America for MaximumFun.org. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Larry Wilmore. Daily Show contributor, television writer, and now author of the new book, I'd Rather We Got Casinos and Other Black Thoughts. I, I want to ask mm. you, as a writer who mm. has been, had been so successful as a writer, right. why in your 40s did you decide... Did I become you know, a struggling actor? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why did you go back to being a performer? I mean, right. you, you had done a little bit of performing right. along the way here sure. and there, the occasional guest spot on a TV show, but... Right. It seems like you recommitted yourself to performance, not just with The Daily Show, mm -hmm. but you know, you, you did several episodes of The Office, you, right. you think about doing stand-up again, that kind of thing. Um, I eventually would like to be a waiter. That's uh -huh. my goal. Sure. That is my goal. <laughs> um, some people do it forwards. I roll in reverse. That's how I <laughs> Was it something that you I missed, got that though? Benjamin Buttons thing going on in my career. <laughs> uh, you know what? My The reason why I originally started to write and produce was so I could write my own thing. Because as I said before, I was auditioning for parts that weren't right for me. The fast-talking ex-con, you know, the guy from the ghetto. And I thought, I need to learn how to do this so I can write for myself. So when I did the part in the office a couple of years ago, I thought, you know, maybe it's time to start doing this, to really think about it seriously, you know. And uh, eventually ended up doing The Daily Show. And now I feel like, okay, I'm in the right place. I need to do this again. And so now the projects that I'm developing, I'm developing for myself and having that mindset now. Of course, I just got a couple of ideas that would be great that aren't for me. And it's like, I can't go pitch those because I'm not doing that now. <laughs> how, did you, how did you pitch The Daily Show? I mean, The Daily Show had like a 10-year you know, history at right. that point of hiring 30-year-old white improv guys from New York right. um, to be correspondents on the show. I just told them that's what I was. And they believed it. Sure. <laughs> no, you know what? The, the show was uh, getting a lot of new blood at the time because Colbert had left about nine months before I got there. And um, uh, Cordry was leaving like the next week. And Ed Helms was leaving. In fact, Ed Helms was going to the office from The Daily Show. And I was going from The Office to The Daily Show. So it was like a prisoner exchange program. You know? <laughs> but um, right before I started, Rob Riggle had just started. John Oliver had started a couple weeks earlier. Asif Manvi was on, I think, the night before I started. So they were getting in a whole new batch of not only different you know, types, but different voices, too. I mean, John being from London and that sort of thing. And Asif being Indian, even, you know. 
So uh, I just kind of happened to fit right in. Did did they come to you or no, did you I went go to them. to them? Yeah, I went to them. Um, my managers and I we were trying to think what would be a good strategy to launch my performing career, <laughs> you know. And I, we thought of doing it two ways. One way as an actor, where I could actually write something for myself, since I was already a producer. And I wanted to get back to my stand-up roots as a performer and kind of use both of those, you know, supporting each other. So, but um, I didn't want to just create a talk show for myself because I felt like, well, I haven't performed in a while and I want, I need that connection with the audience before I make that move. And so we saw the daily show as a way to kind of get paid training, you know, <laughs> kind of work in front of the audience, build a rapport. Paid training on one of the top five right, shows exactly. on television. <laughs> exactly. You got to shoot for the stars. Man. <laughs> and I was very, very fortunate. The timing of it was couldn't have been better that when I thought of that, they were looking for that. Were you thinking, because your tone and voice on The Daily Show mm-hmm. is uh, very similar to the tone, for example, in, in your book. Right. Um, did you have an idea of who your persona was on The Daily Show when you pitched it? No, not at all. Um, Because, first of all, it's a credit to how talented Colbert and Carell were. I mean, Colbert is so funny and such a big personality, you can't help but hear that voice in your head when you're thinking about what a correspondent is. And, um, you know, the joke was that all the other correspondents were Colbert juniors, you know, Colbert light. And so I knew I had to be my own self or whatever, but I wasn't sure exactly what approach. And I had a couple of ideas in mind. I didn't want to be, you know, I didn't want to have the ghetto perspective. I felt that had been done before, you know, black as victim. And I didn't want to do the opposite of that. Like I'm some black Republican who doesn't believe any of this stuff, you know, or whatever, or or is always the opposite point of view. And uh, so I needed to find something that was closer to me, which I'm more of a contrarian, you know. I'll take a point of view just to have a debate, whether I believe in it or not. You know? And um, it's just kind of my sense of humor to be contrary more than to be opposite. You know? So, But when we wrote, we were going to write a couple of bits, and they were going to tape one and keep it and then show the other one live. And my dress rehearsal went horrible. I mean, I died the death of deaths. And keep in mind, I'm basically auditioning on the air. You know, if I flop, chances are they weren't going to call me back. And no one would have even known I was ever on The Daily Show. So I'm going, oh, great. And as a comic and a writer, I did. I felt like I was kind of letting down John Stewart, which is a whole different thing, you know. I mean, because everybody thinks of him. We put him on a pedestal because he's so smart and funny. So um, I was very nervous. And while I was doing it, by the way, the crew wouldn't even look at me. <laughs> they weren't even making eye contact. They're thinking, this guy's not going to last. You But anyhow, John was so nice. During the, They have like a rewrite right before air, and I didn't know that. And he called me into the room. I thought, okay, they're probably going to cancel both of them. And he said, Larry, let's get rid of the second one. Let's just concentrate on one. And we're going to rewrite it. And I said, and just put it in your own words. Let's do it. And so John and I rewrote that one, just uh, just saying it back and forth to each other and kind of making each other laugh. And what I, what I had written was a little too writerly, you know. And I got to just do it with John and make it more of my own voice naturally, instinctively. And uh, right before air, when we were sitting there, he looked at me and said, Larry, just look in the camera. Just effing give it to America. Just do that. And it was so nice. And when I did it, the first thing I did got a huge laugh, and it killed from there. It was, they said it was one of the biggest responses they got from a guy on his first time. Now the crew is like, what the F? We thought this guy wasn't funny. <laughs> I am appalled. I mean, we can do better. I mean, macaca, tar baby, please, those are just lame. <laughs> Wait, those are just lame? You're, you're saying that this racism 
isn't virulent enough for you? Exactly, John. Blacks can't swim. Come on, man. Everybody's known that since 1973. When, when heavyweight champ Joe Frazier tried to swim in the Superstars competition. I mean, look at, look at that, John. Look. Is there a particular piece that you've done in the last couple of years as a, as a regular correspondent that you're particularly proud of? Proud? I don't know. <laughs> um, there are, I do have some favorites. The, uh, I guess my all-time favorite is the one I did with John Oliver when uh, a councilman wanted to ban the N-word in New York, which is a, a true thing. <laughs> and we tortured that guy. It was so much fun. <laughs> We, I mean, the piece on TV was maybe two minutes, maybe. We tortured him for a good hour. <laughs> hour of torture. And John and I had some jokes we were going to do, but most of that hour was John and I just improvising and torturing him. You know, And it was, it was one of the funnest things that I've ever done. So, Leroy, you want to ban this word, um, Larry? Thank you. Um, what he said. Uh, is the word... Um, Offensive to everyone or just to? No, 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 no. no, no I was, no, 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 I was just, I was just oh, okay. don't, don't, don't use that term, please. It's offensive to everyone. Young people are using a word with no meaning, so we're asking people to voluntarily stop using the N word. A voluntary ban. It's like renouncing sweets for Lent. And it is the dessert of racial slurs. Oh, John, isn't it? No, you can't say that. Come uh, on. I didn't, uh... You I'm... said dessert. You equated the N-word to a dessert. Sorry, Larry. That's horrible. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I God. didn't, um... Because it's chocolate? No, it's not. <laughs> Your title on the show is Senior Black Correspondent. Senior Black Correspondent. Which, uh, the joke used to be that you were you were basically the only black person in the history of The Daily Show. Um, right. But uh, these days, uh, whites and acts on the show. So I have opened the door bit. to others. Yes. <laughs> One uh, other has come through. Thank but, you, White. But race is, race is always the central theme of uh, right. the pieces that you do on the show, as it is in right. your book. I mean, the subtitle of your book is Other right. Black Thoughts Specific. Right. Do you find yourself thinking of an idea that's all about, you know, why they put holes in donuts or something like that? And you're like, gosh, I guess I have to think of the black angle on this. It's not so much that. I've decided to embrace this, you know, as a point of view. And I figured, why not? You know, it is a major thing in our culture. Why not? If I haven't taken it, why not embrace that? You know, why run away from that? Other people can do the donut stuff a lot better than I can. But I feel I can do this as good as probably anybody else right now, you know. So I just felt like I want to embrace this, you know, and just do it and take on the culture, the irony of how we view it and everything. And even with Obama in office now, it's really great timing. You know, you talk about outliers, you know, things lining up. We're the exact same age, too. You know, of course, he's president. <laughs> I'm working on a cable show. So, you know. One of the things about The Daily Show is um, it's not so much about uh, satirizing the culture mm -hmm. as it is about satirizing sort of the discourse around the culture. Mm. And this feels like a really great opportunity to satirize the discourse around having the first black president. Maybe he's mm -hmm. kind of a boring dude and mm -hmm. just kind of a, a nerdy Squaresville, so there's not that much that's funny about him unless he does something real stupid. But there's, right. a, there's a lot funny about a post-racial society. I think so. 
You know, and I think uh, people feel like they have more permission to talk about it, which is great. Me, I never wait for permission. I just start <laughs> doing it. Like I said, I've been doing the same humor pretty much since my stand-up. So it's just, you know, the way I like to look at things. And I'm, you know, just lucky that it's lining up right now. But um, I think people are getting more comfortable taking it in, too, which is nice. That's fun. Are you writing for yourself as a, a performer in other venues now? Developing a show at HBO right now. Um, starting to do stand-up again, that sort of thing. And I, I may write another book. But that's about it in The Daily Show. There's nothing else. Like, I'm not writing a film or anything like that. Have you I'm already, writing a film, but it's not for me. Have you already started doing stand-up again? Yes, started in September. Long hiatus, about a good 10, 12 years. How, how, how was it? It was great. I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought. I started a couple of underground clubs with like 10 people. <laughs> I was kind of nervous, you know. I went with a friend of mine. And then I graduated to about 20, 25. And uh, by, by my third or fourth time, I did a night with The Daily Show here at the Steve Allen right before the Emmys. And that was my first show in front of a real audience. And it went really well, so I was very happy about it. And then I've been performing in New York a little bit of comics and doing the Ice House here a little bit in Pasadena. But uh, my my goal is to maybe by next fall is to have an actual act again where I can go out and do my act. It's funny because right now I'm actually lecturing, which is different than doing stand-up, where I'm having more of this kind of discussion, you know, talking about my career and writing and, you know, all kinds of things in a different perspective. The 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 onus isn't so much on being funny as much as it is being informative, which is great. You know, there's not a <laughs> pressure. Stand-up is the hardest job in the world. You have to get a laugh every second. As soon as you start getting the laugh, the audience is like, hey, hey, what? Hey, hey. Hey, man, come on. Let's go. He sucks. What do you mean I suck? I made you laugh for 44 minutes. One minute, you didn't get a laugh, you know. There's always audiences are very greedy in stand-up. There's always a next uh, a next part in the bachelorette party plan. That's exactly right. What about writing a, a book? What what was the you, had had you ever written prose before? Not really. I had kind of a warm up. Ben Carlin did an anthology called uh, "Lessons I've Learned from Women Who've Dumped Me." And he was he was on the show to talk about. Oh, it, okay, actually. yeah. And he asked if I would do something for it. And I wrote something based on a true story where my daughter just cried her eyes out whenever I would hold her her first couple of years of life. And it broke my heart at the time. And I thought it would make a good story as if she dumped me when she came out of the womb, you know. And it was a really good exercise to write that, you know, or just write prose in that style. And uh, it gave me confidence to want to write a book, which I had thought of writing a book, but I hadn't quite gotten the idea. And um, the New York Times did a kind of a profile on me in the spring of 07, and then book people kind of got interested. Once you're in the New York Times, book, book people, people love start, the New yeah, York Times. Exactly. So that it kind of sprung from there. Once I knew that people were interested, which is kind of my psyche, like I never would ask a girl out unless I thought she was kind of interested, because you want to lessen <laughs> how much rejection you're actually going to get. Sure. You know? It's like she said no, but she still, you know, she might have, you know, as opposed to she hated my guts. <laughs> so once I kind of knew there could be a market there to sell it in. Then I started aggressively thinking of an idea. And I felt there, I was on the negotiating committee for the Writers Guild, and um, I felt there was a really good chance there could be a strike. You know, and I thought, I should probably think of something I can do <laughs> to have an income this year in case that happens. Uh, it turned out there was a strike, and uh, but I still ended up writing the book um, a couple months after 
I didn't even get any writing done, unfortunately. Well, mm. Larry, thank you so much for taking all this time to be on the Sound of sure. America. So great to have you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Uh, you can see Larry Wilmore about once a month on The Daily Show, and his brand new book is called I'd Rather We Got Casinos and Other Black Thoughts, and it's hilarious. Thanks again, Larry. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's another Sound of Young America program for you. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself, interstitial music provided by Dan Wally, and our show is edited by Nick White, our intern, Brian Fernandez. You can, of course, find us online at MaximumFun.org, and if you have thoughts about the show, you can email me at jesse at MaximumFun.org. And, of course, our show is supported by donations. If you'd like to make a donation to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on, surprise, surprise, donate in the upper right-hand corner. If you ever hear a Sound of Young America program that you particularly like, we love it if you send it around to your friends. Please do so. Either send the audio file directly or grab the link from our blog or our archive page and send it that way. There's even an embeddable audio player if you want to do it that way. Now my dog's barking in the background, so I better go take care of that. We'll see you next time on the Sound of Young America.